0: we're deep into the library section of of everything that comes with Slackware. And and that's difficult to talk about sometimes because it's a library. What do you talk about? You give a whole bunch of sample code. I didn't want to do that. I don't want to do that for every library. But the, the one that is is right in front of us right now, APR-1.7.0, is I think kind of unique and, and interesting enough to talk about in, in a real kind of um, specific way, or at least it captivated me enough to want to talk about it with some specific code. And so that's what I'm going to do right now. So, uh, APR is Apache Portable Runtime, and it originally, at least as I understand it, and I could be, I I could have some of the details incorrect, but let's, let's, let's be a little bit flexible here. As I understand it, from what I heard around the water cooler, not literal, um, is that APR was just basically the underlying code of the server, of, of the Apache server, you know, the, the HTTP one, the one that built the internet, or that the internet was built upon. Um, So APR was just kind of like, the C library for, for the Apache server. And eventually they broke it out, you know, and made it modular, made it separate from the server because they kind of got to thinking about it. And they realized that it's actually kind of useful to have an Apache licensed Lib C, essentially. I mean, it's like, it's a C library, Apache license, anyone can run it. And then you have like a, a, a a, a sort of a standardized, uh, another standardized C library and and now I'm start I'm starting to unsell it I feel because now it, it just sounds kind of arbitrary but I think there is there's some value here because it's it's a very again apache license so it's one of those things where people can use it without any kind of obligation it's very as they say permissive it is just one of those licenses where you can be a horrible person, you can use the code and never give an ounce of your time or consideration back to the developers, and nobody cares because that's the license. So that's an advantage for a lot of companies. Do I care about giving companies an advantage? Not really. In fact, I think they could do with a few a few disadvantages in this day and age. But I think that there's still value here to APR because it is a library, that you could write your program against, and that would be the library that you could then sort of send out with your li- with, with your program. So in other words, if you can't rely on what C library a specific system has on it, then you could send this out, you could bundle this with your code, essentially, and, and trust that there's the C library, a known C library on your target. Does that feel like shipping... I don't know, Python with your Python app? Yeah, a little bit. Does it feel like shipping Java with your Java app? Yeah, sort of. Or it might also feel a little bit like shipping Java and requiring people to have a JVM on, on their computer in order to run it. So, yes, it is. It's one of those things where you, you, quite possibly your target audience could already have GNU LibC on their machine, or, or what, what's the, what's the small one? Musl um, M- 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 C, or Run C, or whatever they are, you, they have all these other different C libraries on their target, and, and yet you are shipping APR with your code. Now, don't you feel silly for, for making people download that entire thing? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I mean, to be fair, APR itself is all of, uh, at least zipped or, or ex it's 255 kilobytes. So, it, you know, it's not like you're installing a flat pack and pulling in the the whole of the GNOME or free desktop SDK, all five gigabytes of it or, or whatever it is, one, one gigabyte. It's a small little addition to your source code, but there you know once once you have it, you have I guess a a more portable C program than possibly, you know, a C built against something else. There are arguments in lots of different directions about that, but that's what APR is. That's, that's the, the feature that APR offers, and you do see projects using it. Um, there is a page on apache.org about APR, and it talks about who is using their, their project, and certainly the, uh, the HTTP server itself is is using it, as I say that that's where APR sort of came from. But there's also things like uh, FreeSwitch, Tomcat, uh, Subversion, Apache Subversion, um, LibreOffice, and and a couple of other things like ActiveMQ, for for instance, and OpenAMQ. A couple of different projects out there that you may or may not have heard of are using APR, the Apache Portable Runtime. And it's an interesting read to go through some of those product, uh, projects and, and look and see how they're using APR. But I, uh, I I took a look at the free switch code and a couple of other examples online, drummed up a little example to sort of demonstrate what it looks like to use APR. And I'll admit that this isn't a great example for lots of reasons. Uh, one of the main ones being that I'm not, I'm not a C coder. Um, this is a 30 lines of code to do with with C what you could do in uh, I I think about probably maybe 10 10 lines of code and and that is just to implement a really basic uh, example of the cat command but uh, so so in other words I'm apologizing for this probably not being the most amazing use of APR but at the same time also kind of I want to go through it because it it shows some of the different how how unique APR can be sometimes when compared to like GNU libc. So hash include APR uh, angle bracket APR underscore general dot H close bracket hash include bracket APR underscore pools dot H close bracket pools. Again, this is for resource, uh, resource management. And you, you might kind of I think that's one of the more interesting components. We'll we'll get into that. Uh, Hash include uh, bracket APR underscore file underscore IO dot H close bracket. As you can imagine, that's kind of the APR version of standard IO dot H. Okay, int main parentheses parentheses curly brace. That opens up the the one and only function of this very simple C program. First line is APR underscore initialize parentheses parentheses semicolon. That sets up the environment you need for an APR program. It says very specifically in the documentation of APR of the Apache Portable Runtime that any APR program must, this must be the first function call it makes. So you have to do this, upfront. If you don't do this, things won't work and you'll be frustrated. Believe me, I've tried. So and not knowingly, it's just I didn't know I had to use APR underscore initialize. Then I learned that you did. So you have to use that upfront first. And what that does apparently is it sets up like kind of the infrastructure. It provides argc, it provides argv, it provides so the arg count and the and the actual arguments themselves. It I think brings in environment, uh, variables, or, or I guess looks at the environment. And, and apparently it quote accounts for, no, that wasn't the quote. It accounts for quote, platform specific oddities. I don't know what exactly that means. They gave a couple of examples in the documentation, but it didn't mean a whole lot to me. It was like such as win 32 services. Well, I don't know what that means, but you, you, you call that function and you're, you're good to go. I'm thinking of this in sort of three different sections and you could even comment what each section is as a reminder. So there's the setup section and then there's the the actual concatenation section and then there's the cleanup section. We've got the APR initialize parentheses parentheses semicolon. That's a special thing. I mean I, I'm going to organize that under the setup stage, but it's you know it's super special. First thing has to be that. Okay, next we'll set up a pool for our resources and then we'll f- set up a file. That we want to read from so first it's apr underscore pool underscore t that's the type definition so space asterisk my pool semicolon a pool it is a it is a, a a set of resource that apr knows about you don't have to worry about what those are so much you just have to create it now we will create it and it'll be apr underscore pool underscore create parentheses ampersand my pool comma NULL, close parentheses, uh, semicolon. That creates the pool. It set up what a pool is with the type definition, and then it created a pool called my pool. We're gonna do the same thing with a file. APR underscore file underscore T, space asterisk, file semicolon. Well, now we need to create the, or we need to define the file that we've, we need to name the file, that We've just uh, made a, a place for, and that will be car or C H A R as in character car space asterisk my file equals quote text.txt close quote semicolon. Uh, before we run this code, we'll create a text.txt file so that that actually means something. In a real program, you would probably not be doing that you would ask the user what file do you want well you wouldn't ask you would allow the user to pass an uh use an option to pass an argument to your application which again the arguments have been they exist because of apr underscore initialize but i don't want to get into the whole loop of 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 doing that so i'm just i'm hard coding the file name not as exciting as doing a dash dash input you know that sort of thing or just a file name but quicker. Okay, so the next section on line 12, which is just a comment, so forward slash forward slash cat, that's, this is that section, this is the, the the business section of this little application. APR underscore file underscore open parentheses ampersand file, that's the type, comma, my file, that's the actual file, that's like the, the variable we just, defined comma apr underscore read that's a macro it's a c macro it's all capital so there's a bunch of code in a header file somewhere that expands apr underscore read to a bunch of stuff that you don't have to do because you're using this apr underscore read comma uh, apr underscore os underscore default another macro Comma my pool. That's our resource pool. Close parentheses. Semicolon. Next line is apr underscore off underscore t. So it's another type definition here. Uh, and this one is called offset equals zero. Semicolon. Now this is kind of this is really one great reason that I just hate. S- programming and see there's just this you, you have it's so manual there's so there's stuff like you know in 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 python let's say you want to open a file and read it it's still to me i think it's still a little bit ugly i mean you have to like open and then you have to do a, this loop to go through every line or whatever um, but I guess that's what programming is, right? But in in C, I mean, you have to do apr off offset equals zero, and then you do apr underscore file underscore seek. So now we're seeking through the file parentheses file, so that's again just the the type, not the actual file, comma apr underscore end, which is um the uh, a C macro again. So that'll find the end of the file, comma ampersand offset parentheses semicolon. So the uh, so offset right now is is zero, uh, and then we're gonna do apr underscore size underscore t space size equals offset semicolon. And so now we know how big the file is. So now we can create a buffer to put all that information from the file into, and then we can read it out of the buffer. So or we can print from the buffer. So car space asterisk um, my buffer equals apr underscore pc alloc that's p c a l l o c parentheses my pool that's our resources comma size plus one parentheses semicolon i forget forget why you need the plus one uh try it without it you'll you'll see um offset equals zero semicolon apr underscore file underscore seek parentheses file comma APR underscore set comma ampersand offset parentheses semicolon and then APR underscore file underscore read parentheses file comma buffer comma ampersand size parentheses semicolon and now we can just use printf parentheses my buffer close parentheses Semicolon. That's the cat section. It's ugly. I hate that section of this code. I mean, it's too bad that it's ugly because that's the main function of this application. I just don't like that. I do not like that style of coding. It's too manual. It's you. Every time, every moment I'm typing that kind of code, I am thinking of all the millions of people around the globe who have typed basically the same thing. I can't stand it. It's it's exactly like put it all in a macro or something. Just give that, give that to me. Like, it's just, it's crazy. I I understand that it's, you know, that kind of flexibility is exactly what enables, like, a bunch of other stuff, but just... You're just something like this. I don't know. It just annoys me. Um. Anyway, that's the cat section. This is the final section. Cleanup. Forward, forward slash forward slash cleanup to make a comment. Next line. So that's uh, line 23 we're on if you're counting. APR underscore file underscore close parentheses my file. Close parentheses. Close semicolon. APR underscore pool underscore destroy. Parentheses my pool. Close parentheses semicolon. And then APR underscore terminate parentheses, parentheses, semicolon, and then return zero, semicolon. Uh, Oh, and then uh, curly brace. Uh, Sorry, not my file. File. APR underscore file underscore close file. Not my file. That's it. That's the application, but we need now some text file in the same directory. For convenience so I'm gonna create Emacs uh, space text dot txt because that's what I said in the in the in the thing and I'll type uh, hello and then another line gnu then another line world another line of another line open space source that that way we have two words on one of those lines I, I got a little bit carried away with the the lines there um, and now we should be good to go sort of and when I say sort of I, I mean th- because we're using we're not using the the standard library of C we're using APR so if I just do a GCC what did I call this my cat dot C then I get an error right away uh, it says fatal error APR general dot H no such file or directory include APR g- underscore general dot H now you can solve that in two different ways you can go into the code and do an include of angle bracket slash user include slash APR uh, dash one or whatever it is, and so on. Or you can leave it generic, just the file name, and then in your compiling uh, instruction specify where it needs to look for those includes. That is more portable because if you hard code it into the the thing, then everyone will have to keep their APR libraries in slash user slash include slash APR dash one. What if someone doesn't have a user include? Like what if someone uh, is compiling in their home directory? So we're going to do it, you know, the the right way and do it in GCC. So GCC dash capital I or space dash capital I, no space slash USR slash include slash AP. APR-1. How do I know that? Well, if I go to do a more slash var log packages on slash APR-1.7.0 and look through the included files that that Pat Volterding put on the the install disk, it looks like the path is user include APR-1. And then inside of that that are all the header files, APR.h. APR_allocator, APR underscore allocator, APR scan through, ah, APR underscore file underscore IO APR underscore general dot H. Those are the ones that we need. They're APR underscore pools Those are the exact ones that we need, and that's where they are located. Okay, so we're still doing GCC. Uh, that's the dash, uh, so dash capital I underscore, um, uh, slash usr slash include slash apr dash one then space dash lowercase l dash l apr dash one. So it looks like dash lapper dash one. It's really weird. But that's how you again. That's the notation for GCC. You you don't need to give the full path of the library. You just need to tell it where that library lives. How do we know where that library lives? Once again, you go to var log packages. You look at what got installed. Where's the library here? Um, there should be something called libapr and Yep, here it is. usr slash slash usr slash lib64 slash libapr dash So that's where that lives, libAPR. Luckily GCC already knows about user lib64 as part of its configuration for our system, but we still need to tell it which library in that directory, we want to use, and the library that we want to use is apr-1. And then finally, we can give it the name of the file that we want to compile, which is mycat.c. In in this case, and I'll just go ahead and do a dash a -o mycat. That way, it's uh, it get, it gets a nice little a nice name on that on the uh, when it's compiled down. Press return, and it's it's compiled because it's a very little tiny little program and now we can uh, execute it with dot slash my cat, and we don't need to give it the text name because that's hard-coded, so it's just gonna spit out, hello, GNU world of open source. And there you go, that's that's APR. So the things to remember are, if you're using APR, you're using APR as, well, you don't, so I should say, you don't have to just use APR. Uh, free switch, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I'm almost positive. Free switch used APR in addition to another C library. Could be remembering that incorrectly. But um you can do that. Like you can use APR you and then also use standard uh, IO or or whatever. So that's not a problem. It'll it'll work. Um but if you're using APR, then you need to point your compiler to where you have your APR header files and your APR library so that it compile against it can include and compile against those things. Also, if you're using APR, things are different. You're not just swapping out fopen for APR underscore file underscore open. It, it's different. Like, the arguments are going to be different. The, the process that you go through to do something is going to be different. So, in other words, it's not like a drop-in replacement for GNU libc. It is, it is a different it's a different thing it's its own thing and and you have to adjust i mean it, it's a little bit weird sometimes or it's a lot bit weird sometimes so that's just something to to, to be aware of it, it is not here's GNU lib C with a you know but instead of coloring it blue we've colored it red it's just it's just a com- it's a completely different thing except that you can com- you can write c code but but those functions that you're calling those are unique things i mean i think the first line is a dead giveaway. Apr underscore initialize. You'd never think to do that. In I, I don't. I don't think you would have. You would think to do that with any other C library. I, I could be mistaken, but I mean certainly with libc you wouldn't do it and I, I don't think you would do it with those you know those other minimal you know what is it run c or something or musl c or what, whatever those other ones are I, I i'm i don't recall ever seeing anything about that in those libraries i mean i haven't looked in a while but yeah it's it's very unique it's a different sort of it's its own thing keep that in mind. And that is APR. That's the Apache Portable Runtime. Such an interesting concept, I think. Um, The next package after that is APR-Util, which is um, an additional utility interface for APR, including support for XML, LDAP, database interfaces, URI parsing, and so on. So remember in the concatenation section how I was complaining a lot about how horrible it is to have to do all of these things manually because you know that millions of other people have done all of those things already and and it just feels so wasteful to do it. Well APR-Util frees you from a lot of that stuff. It's it's I mean it's not it's still you're still writing C code. So you know you you you've signed up for that, right? If you're doing that, you've signed up for a certain amount of, of legwork. But uh with APR Util you get a bunch of functions uh, that kind of help you uh, deal with that differently. So you've got, for instance, uh, APR underscore base 64. That seems useful. APR underscore crypto. APR underscore LDAP. I mean, that's got to be huge. APR underscore Redis um, APR underscore SHA1, APR underscore URI, as they were saying, uh, APR underscore XML. So lots of things that you can imagine. Oh, date, APR underscore date. So well, a lot of things that you can imagine would just save you a lot of time and effort to, um, probably like reverse engineer and, and figure out on your own. Well, it's, it's just right there. So you don't have to think too hard about it. You can just use one of the utility, uh, libraries, instead. Speaking of letting other libraries do the hard work for you, the next one in the list here is Argon2. And Argon2 is a, uh, it's a library to help you hash passwords. This is specifically a C implementation of the Argon2, um, I guess, algorithm. It is a, um, it's based on a password hashing function that won the password hashing competition. That's P-H-C. And in fact, it's git repository is simply called PHC-Winner-Argon2, so it, it's it's really leaning into that that password hashing competition, uh, which it sounds fascinating. By the way, I'm not I'm not belittling it for being proud of its of its of having won the the password hashing competition. It's very cool. Um, I'm just saying that that that's it's it's very very much like this is it. This is this is the winner of probably something with a lot of competition. Like I can I. I would imagine you wouldn't enter the password hashing competition unless you are pretty confident in your cryptography. So um, Argon2, the, the specific, the library included with Slackware has um, both the reference application as well as the header file, so that you could write your own application or, or rather, use the the algorithm in your own in your own application. I guess really. So and it is just one header file, Argon2.h. Found find it in your user include. Uh, but the the password application Application itself uh, reads from standard in so you'll probably do something like echo uh, password one two three pipe argon two and then assault some some thing to uh, adjust the way the the password is um is is encrypted so i'll i'll put a uh, gnu world order and that provides me with the hash of that password. Now, if I do, for instance, echo password123 pipe argon2 fedora linux, then, as you would hope, uh, the hash is different. It isn't literally uh, this, but I'll I'll compare it to, for instance, a Caesar cipher. So if you've, I don't know if you know what a Caesar cipher is, uh, but apparently back in, you know, like, the Roman times and stuff, Caesar himself, the great Caesar himself, uh, invented a cryptography, or a system of crypto- cryptography, in which you take a letter and shift it over some number of other letters in the alphabet. So if you do an echo A pipe, Caesar 1, then you get B. If you do a Caesar 2 on that, you get C. If you get a... If you do a Caesar uh, 25 on on that, you get Z because there are 26 letters. You're starting at, at one, going all the way to the end. That's a Caesar cipher. So again, not a literal thing, uh, but the salt functionally, or I guess you could almost say that. Well, no, but anyway, the salt functionally uses the it, it's the same purpose, right? It it is it, it it's a little bit of randomness, or you know what? I guess the salt would be something whereby you, well, who cares? I'm overthinking it. The point is that the salt changes the way the encryption works. And if you if you know what the salt was, then you know the special parameters required to decrypt the thing. If you don't know what the salt is, then you may know the method of re- of undoing the, the encrypted data, but you don't know how far to go. So in other words, if I said echo A, Caesar something, then what are we going to get? Or conversely, if I said I ended up with the letter X what did I start with? Well, unless you know Caesar some integer, you don't know. You you could guess. You could say, well, X, uh, you were doing a lot of stuff with A earlier, so maybe you started with an A, meaning that the Caesar cipher would have been like, uh, what would that be like 20, 23? Um, so maybe that, maybe the answer is 23 offset, but you don't know that. And if it's a big long string like argon2, of course... Uh, then it would even be, as you can imagine, more difficult because now you're you're looking at something like password one two three with salt of Fedora Linux, and it doesn't. It's not just a one for one letter translation. It's you know the the the, the hash of that is six B D four zero zero. A1A3225BD1AO46F30 you know and it just goes on and on so that's fun stuff i wish i knew more about cryptography that's it though that's argon2 the the fo- the command and argon2.h the header file gets, lets you do all that stuff except in c functions time for coffee <laughs> With coffee, time to continue our tour. Look up there, right, right over there, beyond the coffee tree. Yes, it is a spell. A spell is one of my favorite applications in the world. Believe it or not, I love a spell or maybe not. it might be i spell Let's read uh, Gnu A spell is a spell checker designed to eventually replace I-spell. I'll bet you anything that's been the official line of A-spell since 1997. I, I just get it, I get that feeling. Because anytime you see eventually replace, you know, like especially in software, I feel it just means both both things will continue to exist forever. Uh, anyway, it can either be used as a library or as an independent spell checker. And yeah, it's true. A spell can be used as an independent spell checker. It can also be used within Emacs. So lots of different options, and I'll, I'll step you through some of them right now. So, uh, Emacs text.t xt that's the file that we used for the mycat application I'm going to repurpose it here I'm going to write uh, well I'll just delete everything that was there and just write hello GNU world ardor a r d e r of um of um of, of wpen so- source so lots of misspellings there realization with an s not a z and then a word that's complete nonsense just random letters And then I'm going to make another paragraph and do a paragraph tag for um, docbook para. Uh, This is a paragraph. And then close the paragraph tag. And uh, that's probably good enough for a demo. Okay, so now I'm going to do a spell in the terminal a spell dash c for check text.txt. it takes over your terminal it becomes its own little interface and it it flags the first thing hello gnu world arder a r d e r instead of order so it gives me a choice down at the bottom of the terminal of words that it might think that was supposed to be so one is adder two is ardor uh like ardor uh three is order, so I'm going to type in three and it replaces it and moves on to the next misspelling, which is w pen which should, should be open. Does it get open at all? Yeah, it does after nine guesses, it figures out that it might be open, so i'm going to click uh, i'm going to press nine and then source it gets that on the first go, so one realization with an s instead of a z it does believe that that's incorrect, even though I have my system set to in z localization. So I'm not sure why it picked that up. Realization with a Z. I guess I'll go that way. And then there's that nonsense word. W A U Q H T A Z. It has no idea what that is. So I'm going to just uh, do an R, lowercase r, for replace. And replace it with uh, Warhammer. And that was it. That was all the misspellings. So it didn't pick up the para- tags, which is awfully nice and not what I had expected. Um, and I guess there were no other misspellings than that. Okay, so I'm going to go back. Oh, I can't because they're, everything's spelled correctly. It, it refuses to check something that has that's all correct. It just, I mean, presumably it checks it, but but it doesn't say, you know, it doesn't tell you. It just, just silently continues. All right, so I'm going to change some things in this file. I'm going to change that realization back to an S. And now I'm going to do a spell dash c text dot txt again. And yeah, it's flagging realization because I put it back to an s. So there's other options too. There's i to ignore and there's a to add. This is highly, highly confusing by the way, because in Emacs, I'm pretty darn sure it's the exact opposite. I believe a is accept and i is insert. So if you want to, if you want to, if you want a word to be remembered in your personal dictionary, in Emacs, you press i to insert it into your dictionary. Or you press A to accept it for this session. Just stop telling me it's misspelled during this spell check. And here it's the exact opposite. It's A to add it to your dictionary, or I to stop telling me that it's that it's incorrect. So I'm, I guess I'll hit I to ignore that word. And then it does find program listing in brackets. So para, I guess, was just, I guess, uh, enough of a word to not be flagged. But it does... it... I, I changed my uh, XML tag to program listing, all one word, and it it rec- it, it sees that as an error. Um, it is it in this context, it's not. It's a docbook tag, so I could add it, or I could ignore it, or I could just hit apparently B for abort. So lots of different uh, options there. So that's a spell. It's also apparently a library, and like I say, I'm pretty darn sure that that's what I'm using in Emacs. But hold on, let me check. I'm going to actually look in my thing. It might be that I'm using iSpell. No, yeah, I am using aSpell. So set q iSpell dash program dash name space quote aSpell close quote. Uh, So interestingly, I am using aSpell. And yeah, I'm pretty darn sure it's the exact opposite in in Emacs. That's really weird. I never really noticed that before. Um, To be fair, I usually use aSpell from within Emacs. I, I don't often use it the way that that i just demonstrated here in the terminal but it is a good thing to know about obviously because if you need a spell checker on a text file just run it through a spell uh, well a spell c that 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 always confuses me it feels like you should just be able to do a spell file name but you have to do the dash c for check uh next up is A spell dash E N, that's the English dictionary files for for A Spell. I could probably find an A spell dash UK to get it to stop uh bugging me about New Zealand spelling. It's I will say, by the way, it is it is um it is weird being someone who grew up with American spelling, and then you're living in a place where that's not the correct spelling, and you know, I mean no one's checking my work really so I can do whatever I want but my computer localization is set to New Zealand so it thinks that the local spelling is the correct spelling uh, and I don't mind the correct the, the the local spelling I'll I'll adopt that as a correct spelling I like it so I'll do that and then at work I, I work with mostly Americans so to to, and for an American company, so in that sense, it is well. It's a global company, but it's its audience. You know, it, it uses American spelling, is what I'm saying. Uh, so so that's the correct spelling there. It's it's really, it's very confusing. Uh, I don't know what to set my computer to or my brain to. And then last, I think, for this episode, but certainly not least, and in fact, this is why it's last, because I think it's probably going to inspire a bit of a talking point. It's the AT-SPI2-ATK. I meant, yeah, dash ATK. I think that's what I said. Um, which bridges uh, the AT-SPI2... Um, uh, um, What is it? uh, Interface to ATK. That's uh, just a mouthful, and and that's okay. It is uh, something that we can reverse engineer. So there is the the, this is a a GNOME. This is a GNOME library, but it's not it's not specific to GNOME. Uh, So if you go to its uh, Git repository, you'll find that uh, a lot of information. So first of all, ATK is the Accessibility Toolkit which is a set of G-object interfaces that can be implemented to communicate with assistive technologies, otherwise often known as AT, or ATs, if you're doing it plural. Um, SPI2 is the, so this is the assistive Technology, that's AT, Service Provider Interface, SPI. And this is the second uh, edition of that. So GTK3 calls ATK directly and assumes that AT-SPI2-ATK is there. GTK2 loads a module at runtime to do basically the same thing. Chromium uses this. Gnome Shell uses it. Anything that uses ATK directly, like... Mozilla Firefox it ends up needing AT-SPI2-ATK. So that's that's the information about sort of the concept. You can find out even more about it at gitlab.gnome.org/gnome/at-spi2-atk. slash But there is I mean obviously it's not just gnome, other things are using this and and there's a lot of information to be honest or a fair amount of information, to be honest, about this kind of stuff, uh, both on GNOME and KDE websites. So if you go to, like, community.kde.org slash accessibility, you've, there, there's a, it's, it's a non-trivial amount of information. I mean, a lot of it's pointers to other places, but there's technical information about, you know, accessibility and software. And, and, in the KDE division, which is what I'll focus on just because GNOME doesn't ship with Slackware, so it seems weird. Um, so, uh, I mean, people can run GNOME on Slackware, but it doesn't ship with it. So I'll, I'll focus on KDE in this case. And so the accessibility applications in KDE are, if, if you go to uh, the site that KDE itself directs you to from the accessibility, there are three there's KMag, which is a screen magnifier. There's KMouse Tool, which is an automatic mouse clicker, and there's Kmouth, which is a speech synthesizer front end. Although, don't let that fool you, the voice that Kmouth uses is really pretty rough, and I would I would say it's it's I would say maybe a little disappointing. Um I should do a show about sort of that sometime, but I, I frankly need to need to study up on it more. There are some really great voices out there in open source, um, but I, I guess you, you really have to configure it. You really have to set that up. Either way, those are the three quote-unquote accessibility tools in KDE. And that doesn't really cover everything, to be honest. But those are applications that sort of consider themselves, I guess, mostly or primarily tools for accessibility. And 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 that's great because Kmag, I mean, it'll magnify a screen. And if you can't see your screen uh, clearly when it's at normal size, then maybe you can see it better once it's larger. Depending on you know, depending on on what you need, Kmouse tool could be good for mobility stuff. Uh, or yeah, mobility, uh, K mouth could be good for, for people who who can't see at all. So really important applications, really important functionality. And if you go to, um, the technical information for application developers, there's the KDE human interface guidelines, which attempts to assist, uh, people designing the applications, uh, on sort of, how to kind of optimize your application for accessibility. And it, it, it's, it's tough, right? Because the reason is because accessibility is a really, really broad term, and it is also a very, very diverse term. So by broad, I mean, is something accessible? What does that mean? Does it mean when a, when a, a user new to Linux sits down at the computer Do they feel comfortable with that application? Is it accessible? Sure, sure, that's what it could mean. It could also mean when someone who is blind sits down at your computer, can they use it at all? Can someone install your operating system? Is that accessible? Can someone who has no motion control, but maybe, uh, you know, moving something with their eye or like eye eye movement or, or, you know, subtle movements of their head or something, can they use the computer? Lots of different sort of, can someone who who cannot hear, uh, someone who is deaf, can they use a computer and and get meaningful alerts when they need to have their attention drawn to something rather than a a, a chime that they can't hear? These are all totally valid like interpretations of the word accessible, and so when you're a developer and you're thinking, how do I make my software accessible? I mean, that's just, that's almost not even a, que- a, a, that's not a meaningful statement almost, you know? Because it's like, well, who are you trying to make it accessible to? And I think, I think, more than thinking about, like, what do, what do I need? What do we need as an open source community? What do we need to do to make things accessible? I, I really think, think, and and go with me on this for a minute, I think what we need to be doing is asking how can we make the software that we write flexible? Because that's really what matters to people, like for accessibility. Like, you need to be able to set things up on your computer the way that it works best for you. And some desktops, I'm not going to name any desktops specifically, we're not here to to point fingers, but some desktops, and it's not KDE, um, seem to be moving, or have moved, towards a very sort of firm, like, this is our desktop, this is how it works, this is what it looks like, while other desktops remain quite flexible. And I'm not by any means saying that KDE is more flexible than GNOME. Oh, did I just name the desktop that I was trying not to name? Anyway, I'm not saying one is more flexible than the other. I'm just saying That KDE has a lot of options to it. And now, again, accessibility is a big, broad term. So to some people, they might say, well, that makes KDE inaccessible to people who get overwhelmed by too many options. And I think that's a valid concern. And I think that, I think there's a world where you could maybe turn off the options. You know, you could just be, give me the simplified view. That 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 could be a thing. And KDE actually had such a thing for a little while. I don't remember what it was called. It was something like kiosk mode. That may have been what it was called. And it was a plasma desktop setup where it was, I think, like, it had buttons in the middle of the screen, kind of like a mobile phone almost. Was, that, that was your launcher, your application launcher. I think you could even set which ones were there by default. You know, you like your 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 uh, browser, your file manager, and probably a network setting thing or something like that, or, or preferences, and and that was it. Like that was the interface, and it was a crazy idea. And I mean, certainly I never used it, but I, I checked it out just for fun. And yeah, it was like really, it was like oh my gosh, the, like this is the the worst thing I've ever seen, and the perfect thing for the mythical grandmother that we're always all worried about uh, having to use. You know, how can we get this mythical grandmother or grandfather to to use Linux? Well, you, you hand them this three button laptop, and maybe it'll work. So I I think that I think the key really is to make things flexible. Because if if you've got a, a function on your desktop that can invert the screen on demand, or that can magnify the screen, or that can get rid of all the funky little tiny buttons up in the top right, because all I really ever use that for is uh, network settings, and, and the other ones just overwhelm me, or they, because I can't see the, which icon is which, it, it just absolutely makes it unusable for me. Or maybe you don't want them up at the top right screen at all, maybe you want them over on the left-hand side. Well, you can you can do all of that stuff in KDE really, really easily, and I think that's a huge advantage to KDE. I think the the flexibility of a platform is is a huge accessibility feature for all the different kinds of accessibility requirements. I'm not saying KDE has all the accessibility stuff down exactly perfectly. I I don't think that it does and I don't think computing does and I don't think open source does. I think open source, you know, in 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 spirit should be at the cutting edge, right? We should we should have the best stuff because we're we are the operating system and the software for the people, like we're, we don't, everyone is welcome here, right? So obviously we would have the stuff that would let them use the platform. And yet every blind person I know has an iPhone because the accessibility features on an iPhone are are second to none. I mean, you can, they can You can use an iPhone without sight and it's, it's, it's crazy how you do it. I mean, it's like you're, you hold down a a finger on the thing and then it re, like if you're dialing a number, the, the numbers reorient essentially wherever you touch basically. So, so from, from where you first press, the numbers now are oriented around that, something like that. I've never done it, so I don't, I don't know, but I mean, literally I have people who are blind who use iPhones. Like it, it's, it's a thing that they can do 100%. Like the accessibility is that good, and you just look at like I don't know Android, and and that's not quite as good. I I don't I don't know, but I mean I haven't met any blind person using Android. I'm sure someone is, but I, it's not it's, it doesn't seem to be as common as as iPhone use with blind users. So I don't know. Um, so in spirit, I think open source should have the best, um, but I think in practice, you know, we're we're, we're stuck with these really really awkward sounding text-to-speech voices unless you install a bunch of other stuff and tie them together. Uh, we're, we're stuck with with uh, a, a somewhat open source phone OS that doesn't really, you know, I, I guess it, it'll take voice commands, you know, which is awkward if you don't want to speak to your phone some, somewhere. Maybe you don't want to do that. You just want to Use your phone. You don't want to have to shout at your phone. Um, you have we, we have operating systems that you might not be able to install under certain conditions or or you know without a certain condition. Slackware, of course, does this quite well. I mean, it's got the um, it's got the speech synthesizer stuff built into the kernel from the from the start. The speak up, so I mean, you can you can install Slackware uh, under a lot of different conditions. But, I mean, you might not be able to. So my point is that the more that we aim to just make software flexible, not necessarily just because, oh, someone might not have sight or someone might not be able to hear that thing or someone might not be able to move their mouse from here to there it, it's also just because someone might arbitrarily not want that thing and that's the thing about accessibility that you know everyone is everyone benefits from the weirdest accessibility features. I mean really there's I, I feel like I've had an example of that once a week for the past five years, you know just where you where you see something and you think, oh my gosh, that's so darned useful And then you think, I wonder if that feature, is because of of this reason. But for you as someone who's maybe not disabled in a in a in a drastic way, it's just a really cool feature. It's just a really nice thing to have. But some people like really really need that feature. So I think all of the features in the software that we use, I think every feature that we have in software is is potentially an accessibility feature. And the more and more we make it easy, the more and more we're inviting more people over to open source. I, I Again, I think in spirit, we all kind of know and agree with that. I mean, I hope. And certainly, anyone you know, like if we just sit around and say, "Oh, we should be better at accessibility in open source," I mean, that's not going to fix anything. So it's like a quote important unquote topic, and yet it's also, I think it's, just, it feels like a topic that yes, we should make things more accessible. But I think the, I think the missing component for me at least is that accessibility quote unquote accessibility. It's not a magical switch that you have to just make sure that you flip in your code. It's not like some, it's not just a little library that you include. I mean, it it can literally be a library that you include, AT-SPI2-ATK, for instance, but it can also be keeping software flexible because sometimes you you just can't, you can't anticipate a particular uh, accessibility need. You just won't think of it it just won't occur to you because you've, yes, you've, you've made it accessible for a blind person. You've made it accessible for a deaf person. You've made it accessible for someone with mobility problems. But, but what about the person with, with color blindness Or what about the person with a depth perception uh, issue? I don't know why you uh, that, that probably wouldn't matter on a 2d screen, huh? But anyway, you know, like there's always something else that you just may not think about you there might not even be a library for that thing because you're not maybe it's not part of the interface maybe it's or it is part of the interface but it's not part of the code it's it's just part of the design again like colorblindness being a, a quick and easy example you might be you might think that that two things are perfectly distinguishable from one another because you've you've you followed all the rules on contrast and on um on you know it, making sure that everything looks different uh and, and can be seen in in varying contrast situations and and you followed all the mobility rules and everything like but but the thing that you forgot was that some people just don't see the color at all and so you really need to give it like a different you know, you need to give it stripes and dots or something like that instead of just the different colors. Whatever the case might might be. There's always something out there. And the more flexible and malleable we make it for the user, the less we give users the opportunity to be to, to be frustrated by what we're giving them. That's where I'm going to end this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. why